I said to the police, you have to capture him very, very soon because he's going to relapse, he's going to do it again. I thought at that moment they are violated and murdered. The police has all the answers. The question remains, why didn't they arrest him? Marcinelle, a grim suburb of the industrial town of Charleroi in the south of Belgium, where on the 15th of August, 1996, the dramatic rescue of two young girls was caught on camera. Letitia Delez had been held captive for six days. The events of the following months would involve six families and shake a nation to its core. It was a tragedy that would gather momentum and spark national outrage over rumors of conspiracy and corruption in the highest levels of the Belgian judicial system. A tragedy that we now know could have been avoided. And at its center, an evil psychopath, Mark Dutroux. Hi, welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. Tonight on the show, we have a very special guest coming to us from Europe. She is experienced in something that's very relevant right now, considering the great interest in Pizzagate that's taking place in the United States. She has uh, wide, she's written a number of books, and we're going to talk about those. Uh, her name is Corrine Hutzebaut, H-U-T-S-E-B-A-U-T. Corrine, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, okay. Hello, awesome. everybody. Hi. Thank you so much for being on the show, Corrine. Uh, if you could, a lot of people in the United States where this, this, this uh, transmission will go out globally, but most of the United States people aren't familiar with your name or your work experience and your kind of central focus. If you could please elaborate on your work history and how you kind of got into uh, this field. Well, it's a long story. <clears throat> it started, in fact, in 1984, where, uh, when a little boy was abducted in the middle of Brussels, a big city, the capital of the country of Belgium. And the boy was six years old. And um, it was in, in a short article in the newspaper, and that was it. Now, I had children of that age at the time, and I was wondering how parents can handle this, not having news of a six-year-old. And a friend of mine was a police officer, and, I, and he worked in Brussels. So I asked, I asked him, um, what about that little boy, Gevrije Kavat? He said, yes, what about it? I said, what are you doing in these cases? He said, we wait. I said, what? He said, we wait. We wait until... Uh, Somebody has something to say about it, or some proof, or... So they were not even investigating, they were not looking for the child. I couldn't believe my ears. If my child is abducted, I want the world to stop turning until they find my child. Well, that wasn't the case, so I was amazed. As most of the people, I thought that the police was actively doing things. And this was absolutely not true. Absolutely not. And so I started to um, to go deeper into this subject. It wasn't it wasn't easy at the time because there was nothing in the in the seventies. You know, there was a tendency of accepting pedophilia in the Netherlands and even in Belgium that it was not that bad and all that. Um, but 
Um, I wanted to know what kind of people are these that need sex with a child? What kind of people are these? So I started to treat uh, victims of uh, child sex abuse. And, um, and I specialized, but I had to go to English-speaking countries because there was nothing else in the world. Um, I went to the Graceful Institute in Birmingham, in the UK, where I was part of the, the team to, in, in a resident setting for uh, pedophiles. I prefer to call them pedosexuals. Um, but there were also women, so I was again shocked. I couldn't believe that women could be child sex offenders. Um, but it was a very, very, very important uh, journey there. I learned a lot about them, also how to, to uh, approach them, how to talk to them very directly, to the point. Uh, no political correctness. And this is back um, in the mid-80s, correct? Yes, okay. yes. At the same time, I was studying uh, child serial killers in the whole of Europe. Now, the advantage is that I speak different languages, because if you need a translator, the fine, the fine details are lost. Right. So I, I, I started to study them, and that was my best university, uh, the killers themselves, the rapists themselves. When you um, did you travel around to talk to the killers face to face? Yes, in prison. Yes, and this is yeah. all over Europe, so France, England. Yes, and also the Netherlands, Netherlands. and Belgium, and uh, yeah. How and, many how many languages do you speak? Uh, five. Yeah, five. The most important, I think. Now about the first. Um, I'll go further. Um, I took. I thought. I think the most dangerous and gruesome one, because I didn't want to lose time. You know, you can you can build up from the starting criminal and go up to the more gruesome and and, and awful uh, killers. But I thought I'll start with one of the most dangerous ones and. Um, yeah, well, if you see the autopsies of the children, it is, yeah, it's unbelievable. What was, and the, I name, went to what was the name of those uh, killers? Would Americans know the name? Well, uh, the first was Christian van Geloven. He was from the Netherlands. But if you see his background, then, you know, you can understand why they do this. You cannot agree with it. That's something else. But if you see the background, I studied his background. He was born in Eindhoven in the Netherlands in a family which I don't, I don't remember exactly how much, but many children. Uh, the father was very, very violent. The mother was kind of a prostitute. And um, they let in clients to abuse the children. Now, Christian himself, let's call him Chris, um, he was in the room where his little sister of three was raped regularly for years. He also uh, saw how, how um, they, they, they committed abortion on her at the age of 11, 12 years old. 
I talked to him, but his sister too, she's completely broke. Now, the difference between women and men at the time, because things are changing rapidly, is that women that are abused or, or hurt, interiorize their hurt. They, they start automutilation, they blame themselves, uh, and all that. Men, on the other side, exteriorize their anger, their frustration, their fears. And I saw very well the difference between he, he, Chris and his sister, who fled away to Germany and has lived for years. I don't know if she's still alive uh, with a priest uh, to to find some stable uh, point in her life. Um, now, Chris has been, let's say, abducted by his aunt, who could not have children, uh, and she could ch choose a child from the nest, from her sister, uh, before she left for Paris. Her husband was a very high-placed person in a factory from Phoenix. He was, he was uh, kind of a director. And it was with the elite from, you know, the business world. And they lived in Paris. And there I described, because there I, I wrote a book from this one, because it's so, yeah. I wanted the people to understand what is going on and how we create our own psychopaths. And that's how why societies I don't and families do it. Well, I how, don't understand. How like a psychopath is created from their family environment? Most of the time, yes, yes, and not only their immediate environment, but also the bigger society, uh, uh, where where these children are not heard when they they talk about what people do to them. And the same is in the pizza gate scandal and all these scandals all over the world over and over and over again. Um, the victims are not heard and, and right. you're discredited and they put them away in asylums or in mental health hospitals or they drug them uh, to suppress and keep them silent. So did this happen in Europe as well where the victims were imprisoned or maligned by the authorities? But there was, they were not listened to. I remember that his sister fled away at the age of four to the church. She, she thought that God would help her and the priest would help her. But um, the priest sent her home and she, she slept. She was three or four years old. She slept in the street because she didn't want to go home anymore to be raped over and over again. And the police then found her and brought her back home. And they didn't ask the child why she fled away from home. She was such a little baby. In fact, she was a baby, between three and four years old. They didn't investigate the family, nothing. Um, and then and me, and, and Chris was deported to Paris, where he had been used as uh, a doll. He was not allowed to play with other children. He... he he might have to be really the doll of the aunt. Now, his uncle abused him. At the age of 12, because he had to do Latin to be important and successful in life, and he was not good, he was not a good student. 
so the, 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 the adoptive parents paid for a tutor to, to help him with his Latin. Now, the boy at the age of 12 got double messages. If he worked good during that hour alone with that professor, he was, he was allowed to suck his peas. If he worked badly, the professor raped him. In both cases, the child was damaged. And he got the same double messages during his whole life. When he was studying now, Latin with the like with the priest, how old was he? With the priest. Yeah, in Paris. Chris was in Paris. Or he was he studying. He was in Paris. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, his sister went living with the priest. Oh I'm sorry. So Yeah. But that was a life. Okay, so how old was he at the time when he was being abused or where he had these kind of double messages? At school, at 12. 12. 12, okay. Yeah. When you start uh, learning uh, Latin, and so you must be 12. Now, the, the, his aunt had found another child, a four-year-old Italian child, a girl, and all of a sudden, Chris didn't matter anymore. The boy that never learned uh, how to defend himself, to be social and all that, and already very, very traumatized, um, had been sent to a border school, far away from home. He could come home once a month, because there was another baby, there was another girl. He then started um, abusing the girl of four years old, um, and so on and so on. Now, when I come to the end, he, he started raping children wherever he was. And he was in prison for a double uh, assassination on two little girls of uh, eight years old. And I had to do the expertise on him for the trial. And it was in uh, Perpignan, in France, the south of France. So I, uh, he started writing to me, I think I have thousand letters, very, very important letters. But the deviancy is at the end when he says after a thousand letters, well, you're smart enough uh, to analyze all the letters I wrote to find out more. So he was on trial for double assassination, but I think he killed at least 20 children on his way. And this is alone, it's not a network. Right. <coughs> and this is all through, so all through France or all through Europe? All through Europe and even in the United States, because he has been 18 months in Virginia, um, and I am absolutely sure that he he raped and killed children there. Spell his Absolute. last name. Spell his last name for me. Huh. Uh, okay, I'll do it with the police. Oh, police. <laughs> Wait. The V from Victor, uh, Alpha, November, other word, Golf. Echo, Lima, Oscar, Virginia, Echo, November. And his first name was Christian. Christian. Um, so it's almost Charlie? like Van Gogh. Van Gogh, Gogh. So hmm? It sounds kind of like Van Gogh or Van Gogh the painter. No, Van Gogh. Van Gogh, gotcha. Van Gogh, yes. Um, 
Christian. I see. Okay. Um, I wrote a book about this case later on because I wanted to, to show the interaction between this kind of criminal and their victim. This is the only book in the world that reads both. What, what is it? That what was the title of that book? What was the title of the book? Well, that's the, the only one that is translated in English because I have books in French and in Dutch. But it is Child Hunters. Child Hunters. Child Hunters, uh, Requiem of a Child Killer. When, so that when, was the first book. When was, book that, I wrote. when was that published? Do you remember when it was published? Well, it's, it's 20 years ago, and it's still so accurate the day of today. Uh, I risked at that time uh, eight months of prison because I wrote a book as a professional. I'm an expert at the Justice Department. But I was working in the in case of a double. Um, child abduction. The girl had been found back uh, six week, weeks later in a dock in the water, murdered, and the boy has never been found. The girl was 11 years old and the boy was 8 years old. Now, the way the police treated this, this mother was beyond belief. I was so shocked. I was so ashamed for them. Um, and I couldn't handle this anymore. And Especially the, the, the incompetence, not knowing how they had to lead an investigation like this. It was the 4th of January and then it's very cold in Belgium. And they said to the mother, oh, they are just running away. You will see, in, in 14 days they'll be back because it's holiday, Christmas holiday. Um, and then the mother said, but what are they going to eat, they have nothing to eat, and then they say, oh, they find things in the, in the, in the woods and uh, in, in, you know, um, the prairies to eat. It's a city. Antwerp is a city. There are no woods. There are no prairies. And so the way they, they handled this woman was really... I, did, I almost didn't say how it was at a certain point. Um, I remember we were, it was the first time I saw the parents, in fact, and uh, they found clothes all over the city, and they wanted to know if there were clothes from one of the children. Now, one police officer was a very good one, his name was Paul. He went at night around the docks, it's very abandoned, I've been there alone myself, and it's, uh, well, I don't uh, I'm missing a gene. I don't know what fear is, but most would not go alone there. And certainly not children would not go there at uh, 8 o'clock in the evening when it is dark. Right. Now, he found um, a sweater on the place they found the girl. When, when they got her out of the water, her, her body had been put on the side. And he took it with him, and he had... He hung it in his office because he was working in the laboratory. Uh, and then when all the clothes had passed, he came out of his office and he said, I have one more. Could you please look if this is... And then the mother started screaming that this was the sweater of her little boy. And uh, she, she took it and she, she looked for the, the, you know, the ticket in the, in the back of, of the sweater. 
And she said, you see, you see, it's cut out, because he couldn't stand it in his neck, this thing. This is from my boy, uh, Ken. And the police just throw her into, uh, out of the door. And I had to go with the police officer to the laboratory, which is closed, to not contaminate things. And I saw the mother was sitting on, on, a, on a banquet with the... The, the, the chief of the, the investigation and she was crying and crying and I heard the the, the police the, the officer say well you know she wanted to see her girl uh, that girl and he said but it's not possible he said you can only recognize her on one teeth which was an absolute lie the girl had been in the water at uh, four, 4 degrees uh, Celsius right. which is uh, temperature that keeps a uh, body very cold. Yeah, yeah, very cold. Only when you get it out of the water, then within twelve hours it will decompose. It decomposes quickly with the with the warmth and yeah, the air. And so I heard them. I heard her heard him lying because she was she was very beautiful. The girl when she came out of the water. And then while we were waiting, that. Somebody opened the door of the laboratory. I heard very strange noises behind the door, uh, like cows. Ooh, 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 I thought. And I looked at Paul and I said, and we didn't dare say anything. When we came in, it were the other officers uh, imitating the mother. So, and it was all of this, all the time, the way they handled it. I couldn't, I couldn't handle it anymore. So I decided to write that book um, about these, these cases. It's not only one case. Did they ever find uh, the killers of the young girl and boy? Did they find their murders? The girl who was taken from no, the water? No, no, not, not yet, no. Because I had to make a profile in this, uh, in this case, but the police refused to, to work together, still are after 20 years, not only because I'm, I'm a woman, that's one problem, but uh, on top of this, I'm not part of their course. I'm not of the police. I'm independent. independent. You know? So it was really a big, big problem. And um, because I, I explained in the book what went wrong in all these investigations, I risked uh, a prison sentence of eight months. And I, of course, I had three children. I, I was thinking, oh God, well, but, but I couldn't do then bring out the truth for all these parents that thought that the police was working for them. on their case, and it was not the case. Um, but at that, at the moment, my book came on the market, the Dutroux case broke completely open. I didn't talk about the truth in that first book because I, I did the profile, a perfect profile of the truth a year before he was arrested. But it was not in the book. And they did everything that is in this book was so true that it has not attacked me. Can you, can you tell the listeners a little bit about the Dutroux case in case they've never heard of it? Well, the Dutroux case, in fact, shocked the world because we had journalists from all over the world. I even had uh, twice an interview with CNN, I remember. Uh, but also Australian Broadcast Corporation, but, you know, all over the world. And the point is that um, Mark Dutroux was a man married and 
with three children. There was a baby, even if I remember well, eight months old. Uh, and together with his wife, they abducted the children, brought them in a basement. He arranged. Um, it's now, kind of like a dungeon, right? Kind of a dungeon. Yeah, a dungeon. Absolutely a dungeon. And um, we don't know yet because they refused to investigate this. That these were children that were abducted for a reason, you know, like uh, in a catalog for other men for networks. No, wasn't, wasn't there something mysterious? Like he had six houses, and oh yes, but you, you can hardly call these houses okay. really. They're such a bad uh, shape. Um, but for him, it were houses, and there were big amounts of money on his account each time that the child was abducted. Uh, and I have, I was at, in the United States because I had a, a practice placement at the FBI in Quantico in 95, when I already started having e uh, faxes at the time in the United States about the, the disappearance of those two little girls, also eight years old. Um, and when I came back in Belgium, uh, I was contacted by a detective. And, and don't think that it's the same as in the United States. Detective is quite respected in the United States. It is not in Europe. Um, again, because they are not part of their system. But okay. And he called me and said, you have to come. Absolutely, you have to come. And these children disappeared the 24th of June. I think I was back the 15th of July. He said, there is nothing, that they do nothing at all. And the parents are so anxious, uh, anxious and afraid and, and, and in panic. And I, and I was thinking of the double murder I just did and the way the police worked. And I was tired. I said, well, I don't know. You know, um, I had trouble with my husband because he, just like all people think, we have police to handle this. Why are you doing this? And uh, who is going to pay you? And indeed, that was a problem because I had to drive miles. But my car isn't running on water. But you can't do both. You can't come to parents and say, okay, your two children are lost, but you have to pay me so much. It is just not working. And after a while, then the detective told me, well, listen, I'll come and get you. Let's say that it was about 100 miles from where I lived. And I'll bring you back. And then I said, okay. But then you go in the professional mode. And I said, bring me first at the place where these children have been seen for the last time. Because I, I need to be there. I need to see what were the opportunities to abduct these children. That was on Saturday at 4 o'clock in summer. Um, and... Then oh, these things go automatically. It is so logic. It left on the left side to start with. We we needed twenty minutes to find the location. So you know at that point, oh, the offender, the criminal, must have known this area because you are not going to abduct a child if you don't know the area because you don't know where to flee to. You don't know where the, the dangers are. So he must have known this place. And the left side was the, the um, highway. 
then some bushes, then a small street, walking street, and on the right side there were fields, fields, yeah. Um, but the, the, I saw when I was there that the, the grain had been cut. But in, in June, when these children were abducted, the grain was one meter, I don't know how many inches, one meter twenty high. Right. These children are one meter, one, one meter and five. So the, the abductor could not have come from the other side. He couldn't have seen them. He could only have seen them coming from the highway. And so you start building a profile. Then we went, we went to the parents, and of course these people were desperate. Two pairs of parents, because there were two girls, friends of each other. And um, the police was there too, I remember. And I saw people running in and out of the rooms of one of the girls. And I said, did you pre preserve DNA? Uh, out of a, a hair comb or something, or a swimming suit. Um, no, they didn't do that. I said, um, I remember having three or four questions. And at the end I said, you have to look for somebody, because I knew abducting two children at the same time is extremely difficult. Especially when you're alone, full daytime people walking around. Uh, so this, I knew this is somebody who did this before. So I said to the police, you have to, um, you have to go and look at the files of uh, uh, judged criminals for abduction, sequestration, and torture. And you have to look in a triangle of Liège, Namur, and Charleroi. Let's are, say that's kind of like south, south, south Belgium, correct? Kind of the yes, southern part. Yes. This is a triangle, let's say, of half, 30 kilometers on 30 kilometers on 30 kilometers. So it's not a, a big. It's not big, right. And, and, and we are a small country. Don't forget, Belgium is a very small country. Uh, and, and I know that there are no, not two or three of this kind of offenders, of criminals. And they're starting to say, uh, you know, Mr. Sinterbald, we are not in the United States here, you know. And I said, okay, I'm gone. I'm, I'm out. I, I'm finished with you. But the parents were so desperate. And... Um, they throw the police out of their house. And then I started saying, we need a pluridisciplinary team for this. Uh, people specialize in, in certain skills. Go to the Minister of the Justice Department and ask for So, okay, the Minister of Justice Department sent me two people from the Gendarmerie. At the time it was the Gendarmerie. We had the police and Gendarmerie. And um, I showed them also the, the documents I had from the FBI and all the things I did. And I gave them the profile of Marek Vitru, because I made the profile. This is a man between 35 and 40 years old. He's married. He's in divorce. He has children. He lives in the triangle, as I said. Um, he, um, he has a record for abducting people and torturing them. Um, 
uh, I, I don't remember. It was a long list. You couldn't miss it. Now, what I found out a year later was that they had his name. They had everything on him, which showed us that this was not an isolated case. But um, do you do you find that this kind of lackadaisical, this kind of casual uh, police response was very standard to a lot of these abductions and disappearances? Well, both. There and still is. There are what and still are the problems of incompetence. I asked one policeman once, where do you get your, your you know, your program? Where do you learn what you have to do? And he said, well, we watch American movies. I thought it was a joke, but it isn't a joke. It's true. Because I'm still working in, in unsolved uh, cases, as well in Belgium, in France, in the Netherlands, and <laughs> nothing changed. Nothing changed. I'm very sorry. Do you think that <laughs> your position, your kind of uh, presence as a woman and a mother, was different? Maybe you had a different kind of. Uh, you had a different outlook than somebody else. Well, they use everything they can to not to not admit that they don't know what to do. In the case of the two children I was talking about of Antwerp, I asked uh, during a meeting with uh, the how do you call it? I don't know what the name is. Almost a The judge that has to investigate everything, you know. Um, and then the pathologist, and she was a woman, and I asked for the girl that had been found in the dock, or the hematomes on the, on the head, uh, and, and some other questions. And this woman, she was quite young at the time, she said, oh, listen, to, listen, Mrs. Tittsabel, uh, you know, those brains that was all rotten, you could put them out with a spoon. And I said, I'm sorry, we're talking about an 11-year-old girl, and her name is Kim. And then the judge said to me, Mrs. Hitzelberg, you are too involved emotionally, being a woman and a mother. This has nothing to do with it. Please, can we stay human in these cases? Can we stay emotional? Because these are very emotional acts by the criminal to start with, not to speak what he does to the victims. So, yes, there, there is part of it, the fact that you're a woman and you are a mother, yes. So it's like they dis dismiss, uh, casually dismiss your, your insights, I guess. So on the Dutro case, can you talk a yeah. little bit about the, how the government helped cover it up? And the kind, I mean, wasn't there a huge march by the citizens of Belgium in response to this kind of police Cover up. I mean, I, the only word I can use is a cover up. It was something went on where they they didn't want to see the network of Dutro. Is that right? Uh, yes, and they were very smart to do that. They separated the facts that were proven and the children that were found. And two children have been found alive in the dungeon. Um, they separated this from all the victims calling that they knew Dutro from a network a gruesome network, and that he delivered children uh, for this network, uh, where also the name of uh, our previous king was, uh, was fell regularly, 
but also very prominent people, politics and uh, psychiatrists and doctors and police on the highest level. And they said, okay, we're going to treat this later. First, we're going to condemn uh, and convict this offender for the facts we know, and then we call it file bis. Okay, he has he has been uh, uh, prosecuted Convicted. for the fact, the known fact, right. but never they started the investigation of hundreds of victims that came forward with exactly the same thing. Did any of those victims, were those testimonies or those statements ever recorded? Absolutely, and you can find uh, some of them because they, they, they started to... Yeah, we have a very good judge in this one investigating it, but they put him aside. And they put another one there. But you have, uh, they called them, uh, they, they, they were uh, allowed to testified anonymously. So you have X1, X2, X3, I think till A. Uh, and all these, there are documents, and most of them now you can find on the internet. You have to look under the true X, X files. X files. I think I remember yeah, reading through that. It's just mm -hmm. a remarkable case how they covered up all the ties to the Belgian elite and um, the public was very aware of the cover-up, isn't that correct? And not only that, but the, the, the public was, uh, for years, was, was frustrated by, by the way police handled people, but also poli politicians handled people. And, and well, it became worse <laughs> since then. But, um, and yes, there were 500, they say 300,000, it's not true. It is 500,000 people uh, walked peacefully in the street with white, uh, balloons and white scarves. Um, Didn't they and call it the White March? Wasn't there a name for it that Belgians called it? Like the yes, the White March. The white March. In the, yes. And it was one of the mothers whose child was still missing at that time that uh, started this. And in a heartbeat, all these people went into the street. And there was no internet like now. So it was really a miracle. And there was such panic on the highest level. Uh, our king at the time was in uh, France, because it was August, and uh, August or September, for the March it was September, um, or October. He was on holiday abroad, and our prime minister was uh, Jean Dehaene. He called the, the king to stay where he was, because there was terrible turmoil in Belgium. They, they, they went from uh, courthouse to courthouse and throw rotten eggs against the courthouses, rotten tomatoes, but many, many people. So they were afraid that the, there would be a civil war in Belgium. And then after a while, the king came back and he invited all the outraged parents. And all of a sudden, you see strange things happen. All of a sudden, you have experts in this material. Material you can you cannot imagine. Until then, there were three people in Europe really alarming about this, and it was Patsy Thurston who who had um, an organization for women traffic, and then you had Rick uh, uh, De Villers, who is a priest who who had his organization to to uh, 
shed light on abuse into the church. And then there was me for everything that has to do with child traffic and child murder. But then all of a sudden, you have journalists you never saw before and who, who, see, who, who after that seem to be pilots. And all of a sudden, there are journalists coming to interview you because you made the profile. And then there was another woman and she was attacking me in the media. And in fact, she was a child psychologist. She was not a journalist. You see, this strange thing happened. And then they had their meeting with the king in his kingdom, in his palace, and uh, to try to calm everything down. And he promised that he would do what that, everything in his, in his power to, to, to shed light on this thing. He never did. Never did no. You know, and people get tired from trying whatever. And as long as we think that it are our government and our institutions that will change things, it will never change. The change has to come from us. We are the people. We are the institutions. We have to force them to do their jobs. Because they don't. And still don't. Still not doing it. They're still not doing it. And, and not in the United States, not in Europe. They don't do their jobs. Now, what was the purpose in the 2K? Because I, I, I have files from this. And... Probably you can now find them on the internet. It was observing what the truth was doing day and night so they could blackmail certain people. That is for sure. That is for sure. Well, I think that that's probably what they're going to find out this Pizzagate situation in the United States is that there's partial part of that is a blackmail operation. The after party. Well, it's not even partial. It is. Uh, Let's say 90% of these kinds of, uh, of events and organizations is to blackmail people and to push them to do things that they would never do before. They tried to bribe me with 500,000 euros in 2001. And they, they took their time because they profiled you. They check your bank account. They look if you have, you are, have debts. They, they know I was alone at that time. I, six years uh, I've been living alone with my children. Um, so they know everything about you. And then they, all of a sudden you meet people. But I met a lot of people. But I have very, very, very good guardian angels. I thought everybody had it, but it is not true. How did, they, how did um, you meet these interesting people? How did they approach you? Well, I, was, uh, I have different uh, offices where I had my consultations with victims, but also with offenders. And uh, one of them was at about 80 miles from where I live. And I come into, it's an hotel, and I, I, I rent one office then, because it's only for one day. The other days I have other offices in, in, in the country, but also in Paris. And I come in, and at, in the lobby, there are two people coming at me and say, oh, hi, Karine, how are you? We've been looking for you for, for months. I said, how is that possible? Everybody knows where I live. Because I was all the time in the media when a child was killed, the child, and I said, everybody knows where I live. So you made me. Oh, we have to talk. Oh, I said, I have no time. My waiting room is full. I have no time. Oh, well, we will wait. We'll wait. Don't worry. So I went in my office and I started working and I forgot about them. And around noon, I went to the toilet and they were still sitting there. Uh, it was a man, yeah, 
I'm talking now about 15 years ago. He must have been 60, 65, you know, well-dressed, and the other was younger, 40, I think. A very a handsome man. And they were still sitting there. So I went to them and I said, what is your problem? Well, we need to talk. We heard you wrote another book and we would like to uh, edit it and, uh, and, and all these things. And well, Okay. I said, well, we'll talk later because I have no time now. And then I went back to my office. And then all of a sudden, you, you see them elsewhere. They call you. Hey, I'm in your neighborhood. Can you come? Because we need to talk about this. And because I'm not afraid and I want to know what is going on. I go into the, the mouth of the animal and I went to see them. And then you, you see a lot of things. You know, I had a very old car and I was the only old car on the parking lot with uh, very expensive cars. And I went in and again, they're coming at you. Oh, hello, how are you? And I was thinking, oh, is this the same man I saw two months ago? And with, you, you could, I'm, a, I'm a poker face. So I said, ah. Uh, have you, have you found, let's call him uh, Vito? I said, no, I just entered. Well, he's there. And then you go into the restaurant and there's nobody else but three ex-Belgians oh, and a singer and people you know from the media, from the entertainment. And that's important because it's a pizza cake, I say. And, well, they're talking and talking and and, and all of a sudden, I'm alone with, with the, the handsome man. Everybody's gone. I thought, my God, I'm in danger. <laughs> what have to do? And he said, well, listen, we have money for you. Uh, I said, oh, that's nice. Put it on the account of our association. He said, no, no, no association. In, in envelopes. I said, well, it won't be much then. It's an envelope. And so I start joking because I needed to gain time. And uh, he said, come on, be serious. He said, we want to help you. I said, why? Because you said in the media that you were, if you had money, you would buy a little abandoned village in the mountains of France to help all these mothers that are obliged to give their children to, to uh, an abusing father by the judge. No, I said, yeah, well, if I had money, I would do that, yes. And then I was profiling this man and... Uh, he said, I'm going to be honest with you. I am in the tobacco trafficking. And I said, I don't care. The biggest uh, traffickers and mafia is the state. They take so much money on cigarettes. They are. So I, I didn't mind. Now, in the meantime, I had my information that they were also in women traffic and uh, 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 armed traffic and all that. But I wanted to know what did they want from me. And I had my professor in the United States and my father, I sometimes said, well, they're talking about giving me money. I don't know what they want from me. They said, they, nothing, nothing in, in, uh, in repay, just helping. I said, well, I don't know how much it is and I don't know. And my father and my professor were very wise people. My father said, never accept something that you can't pay back immediately if something goes wrong. That was a very wise advice. And then my professor said, I think they want to buy your credibility. Because I was the only person in Europe and even in parts of the world who could explain a very difficult subject like child abuse, rape, murder, 
uh, in a very simple way. And people believe me, still do. I'm very credible. So they buy your credibility. And after 18 months, they were rather desperate. Uh, yeah, I, I, I went to a bar because it was not far away from me, and they insisted I come. And, you know, you see people from whom you know that they are owners of magazines, media magazines and all that. And I was observing all this, and I heard this so-called Vito talking in the phone with somebody else while I was joking with the other, you know. And I heard him say, uh, Eva is showing all the corners of the room in Antwerp. Let's go there. So I knew it was an orgy. Not with children, probably, but anyway, with high-placed people and, and sex and all that. Right. And then they do as if you're one of them. And they said, okay, let's go. We go to Antwerp. But he didn't know. I heard it. And I went outside, and um, they all went into their big cars, and uh, well, to start, and I said, okay, have a nice evening, see you later. I took my car, I went home. But no, a normal person would go with them, because they are very rich, and you know, you're one of them, and you're friends, and they're nice. So it is very, very dangerous. Now, uh, a few months later, they were quite desperate, and I went back to my office, and uh, hundred miles from where I live, and they were there again. And then they said, "We absolutely need to talk. We have five hundred thousand euros for you." And then I knew, oh, I have to be careful because they gave me information. Information is the same as giving you something. Right. And I, my head was spinning, and I thought, "Okay, okay, we get to get out of this here." Okay, but, you know, I said, "You know, that's very nice, you know, but." I can't do anything with 500,000 euros. If you give me 500,000 euros, I buy a villa in the south of uh, France with a swimming pool and a tennis uh, field. And I do nothing anymore. Now we have to be very, very awakened. Okay, uh, how go are we going to spend this and this? Because we have no, no subvention from the state. We, 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 we have, I have to work to be able to do investigations, you see, and still are. And I said, well, do me a favor, give it to somebody else. Really, I won't accept it, thinking of what my father said, thinking of what the Emilio said. And uh, they've always respected me afterwards, always. Because well, I... I bet there are other people have taken it. Other people they've had to, you know, co-opt have taken that money somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a lever. I, that's like a lever to, you know... Once you get that money, then it's like, well, Corinne, we want you to do this or not do this. It's manipulation. Absolutely. The, the, the thing that they wanted me to do, I saw it now. It's not a year ago. I saw somebody else who took the money. And I, I know her because I've been in her program before. And I sent her a mail. Hello, uh, have you taken the 500,000 euros wow. to tell me? And this is about early sexualization of children. They also they also have this program they first had this program in the United States. Now it's here, the parents are not aware. Giving sex lessons at, for, for toddlers at, from the age of two, three years old. That's crazy. And That's this amazing. woman 
this, this woman I know, she's a sexologist, but she has her own program on television, and I've been several times in her program, all of a sudden, she is saying that this is the best for children and all that. I knew exactly right. what she did. I saw you, excuse me, yeah. the term, foster. Yeah. used to 500,000 euros to tell things right. because you were credible. And that's, that's what so they that's want what goes to back to you. It goes back to buying your credibility. You'd earned your Absolutely. reputation for decades. Then they would have that. Yeah. And next thing you know, Two years after you took that money, you'd be talking about stuff like that, perhaps. Um, yes. Just and, a second. And also uh, saying, for instance, that the amount of abused children is decreasing immensely while it's increasing. Right. You know, this kind of thing, they let you say. And you have no choice. Right. Because you took their money. Interesting. Kareem, we are coming to the end of our hour. I just have a couple mm -hmm. things. One, I want to ask just where people can see your books and your website. But also, have you studied the Al... Casar case or Casar case in Spain? Does that sound familiar? Maybe I'm not pronouncing uh, it. Las Niñas de Alcazar. Casar? Oh, yes, but these are these children that were uh, sold to the islands, the islands of the United Kingdom, no? No, it's the one that happened oh, in no, this small is 48. Valencia, Valencia, España. Yeah. yeah. I've lived there four years. You lived there, yeah. So it was just an interesting case. I thought it may be something that you were familiar about. It happened in 1992. Yeah, it's possible that, you know, there are so many cases going on over the world. There's not only pizza case, but it's always the same system. And behind the same system are the same people. The same people. And we have to fight them. And I'm very grateful now for the opportunity with the Internet uh, that sites like yours give to make people aware. To make people aware that we have to stop believing these so-called scientists, these so-called uh, honest politicians, these so-called presidents and kings. Well, let's stop having this kind of gods and, and believe and feel for yourself again. Go home to yourself. What we need is us, not others. Us. Well Take said. responsibility. Well said. Kareen Hutzabau, can you tell people where they can find your books or your English book, or is there a website or anything where they can read? Well, I, I had a website till six months ago, and I closed it because I want to do something else. Nothing was changing. But all of a sudden, this is erupting. And I thought, okay, I didn't want to participate in interviews, but at the same time, uh, I know I have several victims of horrific satanic abuse. I know this is the time to be their voice. And so now I'm, I'm having three interviews a day. Uh, but um, Child Hunters can be found on Amazon. I, I wrote other books too, like, but they're in Flemish. Um, Little Sinners, Church and Child Traffic. Very, very important book. Church and all, Child Traffic, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, Church and Child Traffic. Child traffic. But it's in Dutch for the moment. So I, I did uh, in the other interview I, uh, because people are asking what can we do, and I said, listen, uh, all the Damagas and myself and other people have written books in our own language, and it would be such a help if uh, reti retired uh, translators would help us translate it because it costs it costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of time, and we don't have this. 
Well, if I could it find if I could find a retired translator, how would they contact you? Well, you can send them by, by email. Um, it's all, take email of our association. It's ICMAC, International Center for Molested and Abducted Children. Uh, and it's E-I, I like uh, in India. Right. Uh, C as Charlie. M from Mike. Uh-huh. A from Alpha. C from Charlie. Charlie. Uh-huh. 1994. One nine nine four at gmail dot com. So it's icmac one nine nine four at gmail dot com. Is that correct? That's correct. That's our association since ninety four. Right, and then I also uh, I also contacted you on Facebook, so I know that you're you're kind of watching yeah, that. So people want to contact yeah. you there too. But uh, yeah. Corrine, I think we could probably talk for another hour or two. But uh, yeah. I really appreciate your time. Really a fascinating, incredible interview. Thanks for sharing that information. It's no Corrine, problem. Don't let, don't let you get trapped by money or other promises because you're burned forever. And anyway, you're betraying all these victims. So, okay, it's difficult without money, but it's feasible. Look at me, look at all of us, look at so many. You can do it. Awesome. Corrine, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story. Thank you right, for having night. me. And have a nice day in California. Yeah, I'll try it. I think I'd rather be in Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Corrine Hutzabout, author of Child Hunters, available on Amazon. All of my books are available at my website, occultinvestigations.com. And if you enjoyed this interview, there are other similar interviews on a wide variety of subjects at my YouTube channel, William Ramsey Investigates.